This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hey everyone, we have a special show for you today. For those of you joining for the first time, Dune Talk is official show of DuneNewsNet.com, where we cover everything happening in the universe of Dune. All the latest news, reviews, whether it's Dune Part 2 movie, Dune Sister TV series, and of course, the many books, uh, new and, uh, and old. Often we're here with the four Dune Talk crew members, and other times we bring on special guests for interviews. Today, we're excited to speak with the two editors of Discovering Dune, essays on Frank Herbert's epic saga. As we covered on our website, uh, this new book published by McFarland last, um, last summer brings together many insightful and well-researched perspectives on Dune and its themes, coming from 14 different authors uh, in a way that uh, should hopefully enrich fans' experience of exploring Frank Herbert's uh, works. This is Marcus, your editor at dunewsnet.com, and I'm joined by my co-host, Garen. And if you've tuned in regularly, you know he's also a longtime fan of Dune and enjoys exploring the rich lore and themes fun series. Hey, everybody, just want to say hi. We're so excited to have both uh, Dominic and Trevor on. I, I really love delving deep, and that's a, that's what these guys do. Uh, they know how to do it right because they understand Dune in a way that many people don't. So we're excited to have them on today. Awesome. As mentioned, we're happy to introduce uh, Dominic J. Nardi and, and Trevor Barley. Uh, Dominic's field is political science and has an academic uh, background that includes a PhD uh, from University of Michigan. Uh, Trevor's background is in uh, literature, and in addition to an MLIS, he's currently working on a master's with concentration in Tolkien studies. So uh, welcome both of you to Dune Talk. Uh, wanted to give you each the opportunity to tell our viewers and listeners a little about, about yourselves and what you do when not editing a book about Dune. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, yeah, believe it or not, we actually do have jobs. Um, and editing Dune books is not our full-time job. Unfortunately, it would be great if we could do that. Um, and um, as Marcus said, I'm a political scientist. Um, that might sound like kind of an odd profession for a lot of people. It's basically the use of uh, mathematics and formal logic to better understand politics. And most of my work has been in Southeast Asia. Um, I've worked for U.S. Agency for International Development and the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom to study human rights abuses in Southeast Asia, um, done some work for NGOs. Um, and that, that, this is this is going to be relevant. It's not too much of a tangent because I, some of my, my work on Dune actually tries to marry some of the insights I've gotten from the political science literature to better understand Dune. But that's just to give you a bit of a sense of what I do normally. Hey, um, yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Um, I'm a software engineer by day and by night. I'm a literature student in general, kind of all around curious person, interested in everything and um, enjoy learning about the world and, and how it works. As far as when I ran into Dune, um, that goes back to uh, middle school, actually. The library at the school I was at was very well stocked with kind of classic science fiction, Heinlein, Niven, that kind of thing. And I just kind of started, basically almost started at A and worked my way through Z. And anything that piqued my interest, I grabbed it. And Dune was one of those things. 
the first time I read it, I didn't understand it, but I, there was something about it that very much appealed to me, and I just kept at it until I kind of figured everything out, and I'm still figuring things out. It's still, it's still got depth to it that, uh, that will still lie unplumbed. Uh, both of our names are on this book. I'm going to, I want to, I want to show this because my, I'm probably going to destroy my Dune cred right now and telling you how I first <laughs> came to this book. Um, my dad gave me a copy when I was younger because he was interested in science fiction, and he said, Hey, Dominic, this is like, uh, it's like the Star Wars or science fiction. If you like Star Wars, I loved Star Wars at the time, you should read this book. And I did. And I didn't like it. Um, and please don't kick me off the show quite yet. I'm going to finish <laughs> my thought. Um, don't worry, we'll edit that out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult book, especially for younger people to get into. And I think I... I didn't understand the layers of it. I initially thought it was a, I, I initially thought, frankly, it was a white savior story. And um, it was really only when I got into uh, Dune Messiah and Children of Dune, and actually I first watched the, the sci-fi channel miniseries of uh, Children of Dune, that it clicked for me. And it's like, okay, this isn't a white savior story. This is doing something more interesting. And I went back and read Dune. And I was like, okay, now I understand and it's subtle it's you know but it, it, you can see paul's evolution into a charismatic figure and not one to be admired uh somebody who becomes a despot dune messiah is not subtle about it but the original dune novel is <laughs> so i unfortunately was not quite astute enough to pick that up in my first read but obviously i am a fan now yeah uh, th th thanks for sharing about uh, your your experience and a bit about yourselves um so yeah let's let's go right ahead and start discussing discovering dune so how the book starts out there's an insightful introduction by uh, dominic and trevor um and then after that the, the book is actually split into four parts so covering politics and power history and religion uh, biology and ecology, and finally, philosophy, choice, and ethics. Each topic is explored from multiple angles uh, with essays from different authors. So as a result, the book re represents a really wide range of backgrounds and uh, disciplines. So I'm um, interested to hear why you chose this approach of a collection of essays uh, from multiple authors. And uh, secondarily, what was the process of working with everybody uh, to get their contributions together? Trevor and I are we met through um, our mutual interest in Lord of the Rings and J.R.R. Tolkien's works, and um, we've, we've uh, um, attended conferences with um, organized through Sigma, Sigma University, which is an online university focused on speculative fiction. And during one of the conferences several years ago, we were starting to talk about our interest in Dune, and we realized that in Tolkien studies, this, this type of book, the, these edited collections of academic essays are very common. Um, you, you regularly get collected essays on very niche topics in Tolkien studies, like Tolkien and the environment and Tolkien and race and ethnicity. And you don't see anything like that for Dune studies or Herbert's, Frank Herbert studies. There, I don't think there's, there was really anything comparable. And um, you know, aside from uh, some books that were, I think, more oriented more for uh, popular audiences or fan audiences, like the um, Dune and Philosophy books, which, which are great books, but they're, you know, I think they're, they're less for academics and more, I think, for, um, uh, for, for fans. Um, 
you know, we just thought, we thought there's something missing. And given that Dune is often called the Lord of the Rings of science fiction, the lack of academic scholarship focused on the Dune series was really not great, um, especially the sequels. The, the first Dune novel has, has received some scholarly attention the sequels, very little. So that was the genesis of the project and kind of just see if Trevor has anything to add to the uh, origin story. One of the things that I noticed was that whereas Tolkien Studies has a number of scholars who are very much associated with that field and are sustained um, sustained scholarship, um, you know, they write book after book and article after article, there really isn't anybody like that, the field of, you know, Frank Herbert studies and Dune studies and so forth. We're, we're just now starting to see that happening. I think Kara Kennedy is one uh, example of somebody who might, is kind of growing into that role. Um, so my, you know, my hope with this uh, book of essays um, is not that. It, but it, but it, I hope that it will inspire somebody, that it'll be something that will inspire somebody somewhere to kind of write that second and that third and that fourth and fifth and then the book and that kind of thing and become a, you know, a, a well known for being a Dune, a Dune or Frank Herbert scholar. And I think that last point is really key. Um, one of the things we have in the book, we, we tried to gather a, a bibliography of all the academic sources, so the academic books, um, journal articles, we even tried to find PhD and master's theses and put them into a bibliography. Now, it is already, the book's only, this book has only been out for, I think, two months and it's already obsolete because new work is already, are always being published, but we, we want this to be a launching pad for future research. I mean, really the best, Thing that could happen with this book is new scholars write a better book in five or ten years. So when we were going through the list of the bibliography of scholarship, we found articles. We found some really great scholarship, with a handful of exceptions. It was mostly one-offs. You know, people who were you know, scholars who were like in a, a philosophy department or you know study. You know, one one of the, you know, one contributor to our book focuses more on you know, Victorian era literature and, you know, others focused on Byzantine history, you know, nobody, none of the contributors to our book really had academic careers focused on Dune, but, um, but there, there were, you know, there, there were, there was a lot of great scholarship out there, but I think to really have a field of academic study, you need sustained engagement and enough people involved in that academic discussion to have a real community and to have a back and forth and have debates and to have um, key articles that are referenced by uh, the entire community. And that's, I think, something that hopefully we will see more of for Dune. An academic community that's interested in Frank Herbert, not, not just Dune, but I think Frank Herbert studies in general, because I mean, you know, everybody knows Frank Herbert for Dune, but he wrote many other things which are you know, worthy of, of being looked at. So. You know, my hope is to kind of awaken some sort of academic community that would be, um, you know, that would focus in on these things in a kind of a sustained fashion. Going back to that point about um, working with all these these different authors to, to put together one one collection, was that challenging? Like, how how did that come together? 
I think that the typical way that this is done is to put out what's called a CFP, um, which is basically, you know, here's what we're trying to do. Um, if you're interested in submitting an article to it, um, please, you know, send us uh, an abstract. And then we took all those abstracts and then looked through them and, you know, made some decisions, sometimes hard decisions, and, um, you know, just kind of went from there. And the authors were all great. You've been on book projects before where you have somebody who promises to submit a paper for the book and doesn't meet the deadline, doesn't communicate with you. You give extensions. You finally get a rough draft of the paper. You have to do a lot of editing um, to get into shape. That didn't happen with this book. I think most of our contributors were really, you know, just on the ball. Um, so like working with them was easy. This is, it's a passion project. I, you know, I don't, know how much people talk about these types of things but um you don't make a lot of money with these books so um i think everybody who's right submitting a chapter was doing it because they are a dune fan and they had something that they wanted to say yeah this is not something you do if you want to make money it's uh, very much for the 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 old the old uh word the old meaning of the word amateur somebody who loves it we were definitely definitely amateur well, we're we're glad you guys did. I I've I've read both of your articles twice, and and it just it felt like <clears throat> I was in a room of of uh, knowledgeable explorers who have gone somewhere where I wanted to go, but they've come back to kind of explain to me, you know, what they found. And I just I really I really enjoyed it. Being involved in the Dune fandom, I've I've learned that there's lots of different types of Dune fans. I learned at our at our last uh, convention we went to that there are people who hate the new Dune movie and love the 84 Lynch movie, and there shouldn't ever be another movie except the Lynch movie, and there's people that really only love the books. They don't really want to interact with the other artistic forms related. So there's lots of different types of Dune fans. Who who did you guys write this for? Who would who would the the audience be most? I think there's a couple of different audiences. One of them is the the scholarly community, you know, folks who are professional scholars. Um, you know, we we hoped to be at a level that that folks like that could appreciate. But I think there's also a real hunger, and you know, I saw this very much so in the Lord of the Rings Tolkien um, community. There there are folks who would maybe not consider themselves a professional scholar. But they're interested in getting into it. They want to know more. They want to think about it. They want to talk to other people about it. They want to, you know, maybe learn some of the, the terms of art and that kind of thing. Um, that was another audience um, that the book is intended for. Is, you know, maybe you know your average fan, somebody who doesn't consider themselves a, a, um, you know, professional scholar or anything like that to to learn more, to get more into the, to the thing that they love. Most academic books are really expensive. Um, they are university publishers will often publish books and price them for university libraries. And they don't, you know, they're not expecting ordinary fans to buy these books. They sell them for like a hundred, $140 to university libraries that are willing to pay. And, you know, we did consider some academic publishers, um, but I think one of the things we liked about McFarland is that it's got a bit of a niche in the academic space. It's an academic publisher. It does sell at university libraries, but it also publishes, it prices its books pretty reasonably. I don't know 
how much our book is currently selling for on Amazon, but I think it was around $30, which is less than $130. So um, I think our hope is really that anybody who, anybody who can, um, you know, tolerate a little bit of academic jargon and, and isn't scared of footnotes um, can engage with the book. We were talking about how uh, there have been relatively few academic studies of, of Dune, at least uh, if, if you exclude the past, uh, past couple of years where, where more has started to, to service. Uh, so for our viewers who may be less familiar between that distinction of mainstream versus scholarly publications, how would you define the latter and why is it so important for, uh, for Dune to have more of this? I think one of the biggest differences with academic scholarship is that it's building upon previous scholarship. It's engaging in an academic community and an academic and an ongoing dialogue about something. Um, you know, I, I, people who have read academic articles, I'm sure will have noticed that there are a lot of sources, um, footnotes, endnotes, parenthetical citations, whatever the citation format, academic articles are constantly citing sources and that's because the goal of an academic work is to advance our knowledge on a topic. So the book is hopefully advancing our state, our collective knowledge about the Dune universe. Um, there are things I can mostly speak to my article, but I think all the chapters do this in their own way. But my in my article, I you know deliberately puts put something out in the world that I don't think had ever been expressed before. Um, and that's what academic artwork is supposed to do. Fan, fan work or fan commentary um, is often, and I don't mean this pejoratively, because um, I think this is often very useful, but fan commentary or you know, non-academic works are often re-explaining things or, or repackaging insights for new audiences. And there are a lot of great YouTube channels that do this, that they will, you know, they will explain you know, why scholars think that Dune is not a, not a white savior story. Um, so they're, they're communicating those ideas to a broader audience, but it's not necessarily generating new insights or, um, or adding to the world's knowledge about the Dune stories. You know, I would encourage anyone who, whose interest has been piqued by this or anything else to really maybe dip into something scholarly something that's going to maybe stretch you a little bit to you know and you might be surprised what you find there you might be surprised to find that you're you know that it's much more accessible than you thought it would be and that this is something that you're interested and you can engage with and um join the conversation yeah and i want to just uh uh emphasize what trevor was saying there's um uh, there's a lot of gatekeeping in academia um, there's a, an expectation that uh, people have to have a PhD in order to contribute something to the conversation. I do have a PhD in political science. I do not have a PhD in, in literature studies or, or a PhD in Dune, if that exists. Um, a PhD can be incredibly useful. It's a way to learn about the existing scholarship and to learn how to do academic research, but it is not the only way to learn those things. And you know, Trevor and I have both seen this in Tolkien studies. There are people who do not have PhDs who are doing incredibly impressive scholarship. Some of them eventually go on to get PhDs, but 
a PhD, you know, but don't, you know, so don't, don't be intimidated by the book. Don't be intimidated by engaging in scholarship generally if you don't have a PhD. I mean, you still have to do your work. If you, if you are going to write a book about Dune or a, an academic article about Dune, you have to engage with the literature. You have to do your homework. You have to find out what other people are saying, learn how to write for academic audiences. But you know, there's this is it's, it's, this is not like a, a an ivory tower, or that's not our conception of academic work. This is something that can be in, engagement flows both ways. I often just want to read anything uh, that someone has written about the series, and and I think there are some people though that are intimidated, and they they feel like you know wow it's been a long time since I've really dove into something scholarly for a while, even though it's about you know the Dune series and it's it's fun. There is a level of intimidation, and I I appreciate what you're saying because I really think uh, fans that may feel apprehensive will be richly rewarded, and and we can talk later uh, about how both of your articles did that for me and some interactions I had with some of my uh, my young adult children. But um, I would really uh, underscore what you're saying and encourage people to to give it a try because it. It really, it's a different type of reading. It's even very different than reading the actual books themselves. It's a, it's a different mental exercise, but uh, it's very, it's very eye-opening. And I, I would just encourage that. Um, so with the growth of, of the Dune fandom, how do you both think that the scholarship will develop over the coming years? I think what we might see is something um, equivalent to or similar to what happened after um, Lord of the Rings movies came out. Um, it increased the amount of interest in Lord of the Rings and increased the amount of interest in learning about Lord of the Rings um, and led to kind of a resurgence of um, material kind of at all levels um, about um, Lord of the Rings and Tolkien and so forth. So I would like to think that we're going to see that happen here as well, that folks are going to watch the movies, be intrigued, want to learn more, get into it, and then maybe start developing their own ideas that they might want to um, um, you know, write about and so forth. So um, that's what I hope will happen. Um, I, I think we're starting to see it. I think we're starting to see that, um, we're starting to see that happening. One interesting point that that, uh, that came up already in the introduction uh, section, um, there, there's a comment about how you you weren't limiting yourself solely to the uh, authorial intent, um, and to me that was actually quite an interesting comment because uh, Frank Herbert he has been very outspoken on some of his messages, whether it's the dangers of charismatic leaders or uh, themes of environmental preservation. So how would you balance the importance of the author's original intentions against possible different interpretations from readers. Yeah, so this was something that I think we struggled with a bit and something that came up when we had um, reviewers uh, review drafts of the book uh, during the peer review process. And by the way, the academic books, our book as well, did go through peer review. So, um, you know, for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the state of academia, you know, widespread acceptance of this idea of the death of the author, which is that um, scholarship on a on a on a of a book or a story or a movie should look at the text 
and only the text and not consider the author's interpretation because sometimes authors are misinterpret their own work. Sometimes they have an agenda for, you know, they want to make themselves look good. Um, and, you know, there, there are all sorts of reasons why some scholars are skeptical of looking at those ancillary materials or those author interviews or incorporating information about the author's biography into their interpretation of the work. And uh, different, so different contributors, I think, engage with that differently. I think we had enough people who looked at Frank Herbert's interviews and his commentary and his life and used that as a way to interpret the Dune books that we couldn't say we were adopting a death of the author approach. We just didn't think that was, and I think especially for, for Dune and Frank Herbert, intellectually, I just don't, I think it would be really difficult to do. And it would be frankly dishonest of us to say, we are only looking at the text if we've all actually been informed and influenced by what Frank Herbert has said. And my chapter focuses on politics. And um, the way I conceived of using, I tried to use Frank Herbert's comments in a very specific way. You know, I looked at the text, I tried to understand what the text was saying and that was the most important thing. But as we've said earlier tonight, the text is often ambiguous. It's a very difficult text to understand. And when, when, I, when I reach those moments of ambiguity, if I thought there may be possible interpretations, that's when I brought Frank Herbert in to say, okay, you know, could you help me out a bit here? What, what, were you, what, what is the text really saying? Um, you know, for in, 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 and that's where I think looking at Frank Herbert's interviews, especially interviews he gave around the time that he wrote Dune or that he published the novels, I think is, was helpful and I think was an appropriate use of interviews. I think what's important is that you mark what you're doing, um, that you don't try to sort of get away with, you know, saying something that's coming from the author without specifying that this is coming from the author. And I think as long as you're marking what you're doing, explaining what you're doing and you know, why you're doing it and what you're doing with it, um, I think um, I think it can work out. Working with the other contributors in the book, each of you also uh, wrote your own essay, uh, which uh, covered uh, different topics. Um, so I know that the first one was uh, um, in the political and uh, politics and power section. Um, so Dominic, yours was one of two essays that was exploring the topic of prescience and the sort of the, the paradox of being able to predict the future, do you really have a free will uh, or not? So that was a fascinating essay. And I know that uh, Garen has a number of questions about that one. You know game theory very well. You must have studied that uh, in, in, your, in your other studies. When, when did it occur to you that that might be a possible explanation around the prescience uh, paradox? When did that occur to you? I'm just curious. The game theoretic model was a way of conceptualizing prescience and conceptualizing that foresight that Paul has through prescience. Um, because I'm not like I'm not prescient. It just I do I do not have, you know, I haven't had the space melange and I have not, I don't know, I do not have those powers. So I can't, you know, I it understanding what what it means for Paul to see various futures, but also have this deterministic vision of what his future is going to look like. That was really I I I can't hold it all in my head, but if I draw it out in a diagram, it starts to make sense because then 
you start to say, okay, it's possible that there might be branching pathways of the future. It's also possible because of your cause incentives, like what he wants out of life, that maybe only one of those pathways is actually going to occur. No, that's great. I, I, I think it actually um, really did strip away a lot of the ambiguity for me when you showed uh, you know, the branching possibilities of, of uh, a couple of interactions in your, in your chapter. And I just thought that was a fascinating way to look at it. Um, because like you, when I first read Dune in, in, uh, when I was 14 years old, I just wasn't mature enough to even contemplate you know, how that would feel or, or the paradox that, that can exist there. So I really thought that was just an ingenious uh, uh, way to explain it. Um, so I'm just, this is not necessarily a, a very intricate question, but I'm just curious what process you went through to decide which other types of stories related to prescience you included kind of in the second, uh, the second section called the paradox of prescience. Were those just stories that, that, that you were very, that you, that you were a fan of, or, or were those, did you seek out ones that would be a good example of, of that scenario? A little bit of both. I try to, so just to, just for listeners who aren't familiar with the paradox of prescience, this is the idea that um, if, if somebody has prophetic powers like prescience and can see the future, then in seeing the future, there's a paradox because they can't alter the future. And if they do alter the future, then the future that they saw isn't the actual future which means they wouldn't have been able, to, been able to alter the future in the first place. So it's a, that's the paradox. And uh, one of the conclusions there from that essay was uh, about how the Dune, the, the novels are, are warning us um, today about the use of prescience. Uh, for example, when we think about the, the tools that are all around us now, like uh, big data and artificial intelligence and how these potentially can have uh, detrimental consequences on, on our society. So at, at what point in uh, when you were reading the two novels did you reach that conclusion? You know, one of the things I was increasingly aware of as the, at the time when I was writing the chapter is uh, the Chinese government's persecution of Uyghur Muslims in Western China. And one of the things that made this type of person, persecution so is the government's use of big data and surveillance systems. Uh, there's been a lot of reporting about this. Um, Human Rights Watch has done a lot of reporting massive amounts of data on people, basically how much energy they used, um, how many times they prayed, if they had a, if they had a Quran in their house, if they, if people went out the back door, maybe, you know, thinking that was something suspicious, they had, um, you know, at one point, I think they had like cameras, like every 500 meters, just massive surveillance of these Muslim populations in Western China. Uh, and to the, to the point where um, they had these systems that could identify somebody in, um, if, if a camera identified somebody's face, that could be matched to a database with um, you know, a criminal record, their religious history, their educational background, and um, voice records. So, um, and, and I should just clarify for people who haven't been following the situation closely, the, these people for the most part did nothing wrong, but the Chinese government ended up locking, detaining millions of Uyghur Muslims, mostly on the basis of their religion um, and, and specious claims that 
they might somehow one day um, engage in acts of terrorism. So I was writing the Dune chapter as I was seeing a lot of this unfold and as I was working on a lot of those cases and meeting uh, victims of that persecution. And it just, it seemed like, you know, even as extensive as the Chinese government's surveillance systems was, it was still imperfect. There were still things that it couldn't do in process, processing all that data took time and a lot of manpower. Well, imagine if it didn't, you know, imagine if that system could be perfected. Imagine if the dictator of China knew the future, had all the data both in the past and in the future that they needed to identify the next threats that might come up. And that's, I think, what we see in Dune with Paul and then later the second, that they that prescience gives them that ability. They know what their enemies are going to do next. They can anticipate that. They can anticipate the next move after that. And that just gives them a huge advantage and one that I think is frankly chilling. And I think that's why, uh, spoiler if you haven't read the later books, but I think that's why Leto II in his golden path is, a, is a, essentially a way to get away from prescience and to, to free humanity from prescience. It's because of that, because it's like, it's that type of foreknowledge in the hands of a political ruler, I think just inevitably inevitably leads to tyranny. And uh, sometimes looking uh, at uh, Frank Herbert and his his comments and in interviews or what he's wrote on the page, it feels like he had some prescience uh, of his own. Uh, so going back to that, um, uh, the concept of authorial intent for, for a moment, would you say that, um, you know, what, what you're talking about is, is part of his message from the start, or that at least you would have been aligned to the same conclusions if you, if you were around today? He, he's somebody who is very wary of the state and government power. And, um, and, and, and I think in a different, few different ways. And sometimes you see uh, articles and commentary trying to pin Frank Herbert down politically on the political spectrum in the United States today. I think that's really difficult to do, but he is somebody I think who was concerned about government overreach and I, the surveillance state was, um, you know, CCTV cameras were, were, had been invented and were being used in public spaces when Frank Herbert wrote Dune, but the, type of surveillance that we have nowadays probably was not, I don't think any unimaginable and much less social media data, all the data that internet uh, service providers have on our online activities. That's just a massive amount of data and uh, massive uh, violation of privacy that I think, yeah, again, I don't want to put too many words in Frank Herbert's mouth, but I, mouth, but I think I think there's definitely applicability of what he wrote to uh, some of these issues we're facing today. Frank Herbert was scared of superheroes. And I think, of course, Dune is warning about superheroes. Um, he, he did not like it when, pe when people tried to take away other people's, um, and here again, I'm speaking for him, but I probably shouldn't be wording it quite this way, but I think he was very uncomfortable with um, people not thinking for themselves and turning turning over their thinking to um to uh people in charge thanks so let's switch over from politics to uh religion uh so uh trevor your your essay was uh, a critical um moment um so focus on like the the influence of the orange catholic uh bible on on uh, on paul 
So when did it occur to you that the, that, um, the Orange Catholic Bible may have played a crucial role in Paul's transformation? That actually goes back to, I think the second time I read it, I kind of understood more of what I was what I was looking at. And I can remember looking at that and there's a, a passage where Paul talks about the Orange Catholic Bible play, playing a critical role in his transformation. So he's, he's very much aware of it himself, but uh, Herbert never gives us any more information explicitly about what, what that actually was, what was that critical role that the um, OC Bible played. So I think I've always been kind of intrigued by that. And then when this um, book came along, it seemed, you know, logical for me to kind of take that question that had always been in the back of my mind and try and see if I could do something with it and try and find out exactly what, you know, what did Herbert mean by that? As you developed that hypothesis, uh, Trevor, um, about the OC Bible and its effect on Paul, um, was there was there any point that you felt like maybe there wouldn't be enough evidence to kind of fill in the gaps? Uh, did you ever, I guess, question your hypothesis? Or, or I did, and I actually still do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of did the best I could with what was there. Um, I made a guess that I think is fairly reasonable um, based on other pieces of information and other other parts of that transformation process that were described, but we're not really told. We're not told explicitly what that what that critical role is that the Orange Catholic Bible plays. We are told that there are other texts that do have, like the um, um, liturgy, liturgy Against Fear, that that does have an explicit um, impact on him. So I kind of argued from that to say that it's you know it's likely that perhaps this passage from the OC Bible that he um, that he was shown by um, by Dr. Yui that that perhaps was something something similar was going on there and there's some other indications in other parts um, of the book that words had the capability to cause him to change um to to start thinking about things or to go through some kind of transformation process so um i think to answer your question i'm i'm still not 100 percent sure but I, I i feel like i've probably done about the best with the with the data i have so well well i think you did a great job because um after the first reading, uh, I had a bunch of my adult kids over for dinner, my wife and I, and, and one, of my, one of my kids started talking about uh, Dune, and, and so we just turned it on, and we were all just kind of having various discussions, and, and my son and I were watching uh, some, some segments from the new Dune movie, and it was cool because I, I immediately just started talking about uh, the OC Bible and 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 the things that you had just had read from your from your chapter, and it just spawned this whole long hour discussion uh, with with one of my children about the influence of that and and the place of religion in Dune and 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 you know the the commission on ecumenical translators and just all this depth, and he's he's read the book once he's seen the movie a few times and. He, he just wants to know more, like he wants to go deeper. And I thought it was really 
a validation of your hypothesis that I was able to share all this stuff. And he just thought, wow. In fact, that, that scene in the movie where uh, just before Paul goes out and, and sees the palm trees and has that interaction with the man who's, uh, who's watering the palm trees. And then there's all those, uh, those Fremen who were, who were doing their various re religious rites kind of behind that gate. And it was interesting because for the first time, you know, my son was like, wow, there's, there's really a lot of religious depth in this story. I didn't really understand that. And, and so I, I leveraged your article to, to expand that for him. So anyway, I, I just really enjoyed it because I, like you, remember at 14 reading that Orange Catholic Bible phrase and just thinking, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't understand what the orange symbolism was, and you explained that really well in your article. And then the orange of the Catholic combination and what that means. And I just thought it was really uh, just a fascinating uh, exploration of that. So, so thank you. Thank you. Um, my, my other question is that uh, you, you also go into the, the other religions of the Imperium and, and the appendices do shed some light on that. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't go very deep for the the role that religion plays. Obviously, you, you comment on how important it is in the Fremen society and culture, but it really, in my opinion, doesn't go as deep into religion as, as maybe it, it could have. And uh, do you, you know, how do you feel about that, the level of complexity <laughs> that Frank Her Herbert put into it? And, and do you wish maybe he would have done more? Just your opinion on that. Yeah, very much so. I, I really wish that he had put more in about the, we get a lot about the Fremen religion. Um, there's quite a bit in there about that, but we get very, very little other than what's in the appendix about the religion of the non-Fremen people. Um, and I think it would have been fascinating to, to see more of that. I'm especially interested in, there's some, there's some syncretic religions like um, Nava Christianity and Buddhist-Islamic and that kind of thing. And I'm, I'd be very interested to hear, how did Frank Herbert think that the, the, that, that was going to work, a religion that was Buddhist and Islam? That, those to me seem to be very, very different things. And yet he felt that there was at some level, some way that they could get together. So that's, that's the kind of thing I would like to have seen more of. The, um, the Dune Encyclopedia um, has more information about some of these topics, but it's not canon. Um, Frank Herbert enjoyed it uh, when he read it, so I I think it might be called uh, author author approved fan fiction, something like that. So, but anyways, the the point I'm trying to get at is I think the 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 Dune Encyclopedia sc scratches that itch some if you can deal with the fact that it's not canon. It's somebody's very very creative expansion on the um, the Herbert material, but it's but it's not. It's not canon, but it does have some interesting ideas. It's it's very hard to get a hold of. If you do happen to see a copy of the Dune Encyclopedia in a used bookstore or something, it's well worth grabbing and um, taking a look at. Trevor, just one last thing. I, I really love how you, you incorporate both the fact that the spice obviously uh, was, was a major contributor to uh, Paul understanding what his innate uh, special abilities were and prescience and his his evolution as a as a character 
but I thought it was really fascinating how you you incorporated the, the the OC Bible into that too, just because you know in this in this day and age that we're all affected whether we're religious or not. Uh, we're all affected by various things that that cause us to make choices and to develop as people. And I I just thought it was really interesting to sort of lift out this OC Bible influence that I remember feeling like was important, but I just couldn't put the words or wrap my head around it. And, and so you you kind of satisfied that for me in that respect, because there were a lot of factors that came into play in, in, in the evolution and how Paul evolved into who he became. And, and I just think this is a great example of, of showing us, you know, the, 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 the workings behind that for, for the main character that we follow in these, in these books or in the first few books anyway. Thank you. Yeah, thanks uh, Dominic and Trevor for the insights on, on those two essays. And as mentioned, th th there were 12 other authors who worked in the, in the book and we hope that we'll have opportunity to dive into more of those. Um, I guess last question to, to wrap up, um, we'd, we'd like to hear from, from each of you. What do you hope will be the key takeaway for readers who, who read through this collection? I think somebody spoke earlier about, um, you know, different, you know, as they grew, they, in, you know, interpreted and saw different things in the book. And I think that that, you know, to Dune is a book to grow with. Every time you read it, you're going to find new things. You're going to see new things in it. And the book, I hope, our book, I hope, will be a, um, a way to help people see new things, things, things that they haven't seen before. What I hope people reading our book take away though is that um this is a this is this isn't just a that dune isn't just a, a fun book or a good book or an entertaining book but it has something meaningful to say about the state of the human condition and the world and there real there's real wisdom to be taken from it uh like real i think it, it, it will it will that will be different for every person but i think if you really engage the text it has the potential to um inform how you think about the world dominic you you just touched on the fact that it it really is something that can enhance and uh and in, enliven our life experience a, a book like this and a series like this and what i like about what you guys have done uh with this collection of essays is you're kind of uh, pointing the spotlight at some of those interpretations that have enlightened others and can enlighten me, enlighten me if I read it. And, and I just, I love that um, further, you know, like expansion of my understanding. Um, just like both of your articles, I would have never, well, I can't say never, I just don't think I would have come up with the game, a game theory model actually being a great way to explain prescience and then the OC Bible uh, things that I talked about a moment ago. And I just, I love that I can be shown more about this book that I love so much, the series that I love so much, and how I could look at it differently and bring another interpretation into my life and see how that uh, affects my life experience. So I, I just think, again, like I said earlier, you, I think those who will who will read these these essays will be richly rewarded in subsequent readings of the series because it's things that you may not have thought about before from a specific perspective and interpretation, and it's very rewarding. 
That, that wraps up our discussion of Discovering Dune, Essays on Frank Herbert's Epic Saga. It's available now on, uh, on Amazon, uh, both in ebook and paperback formats, as well as other places where, where books are sold. Uh, Dominic and Trevor, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the, on the show to talk about your book and, uh, and give us uh, some of the insights uh, into that. So hopefully more to come. I uh, wanted to give you uh, both a chance to yeah, um, uh, sh share any other projects that, that you have coming up or where people can find you on social media or get more information. Well, I'm actually right now quite busy um, finishing up the degree from uh, Signum University. So I haven't had a chance to think outside of that. Uh, I have a blog that I don't update all that often, unfortunately. It's called Nardy Views, which is my last name in the word views. Um, also on Twitter, you're welcome to follow me there if you want my takes on the latest Star Wars uh, episodes. Um, I did also work on a book from uh, a few years ago, Star Wars and TV, like Star Wars, the transmedia franchise focused just on the TV shows. Um, it is already out of date because there have been at least four or five different new TV shows since that book was published. Uh, so I am actually in the early stages of thinking about a, a way to update that book with my co-editor. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you, if that sounds at all interesting, feel free to follow me on Twitter or my blog and you'll get updates there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dune Companion. And uh, I really like going deep, uh, like both of our guests have done today. So yeah, uh, we'll see you on Twitter. And this is, uh, this is Marcus Gabriel, um, your editor at dunewsnet.com. So you can find me writing at dunewsnet.com or on uh, Twitter and Instagram at uh, dunewsnet. Yeah, and look forward to more uh, interviews coming up as well as our continued coverage of Dune Part 2 movie, uh, Dune the Sisterhood TV show, uh, comics, games, everything else. Uh, you can find it all at dunewsnet.com. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed Dune Talk. Remember to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you know when the next episode drops. Stay tuned to dunenewsnet.com and add us to your social feeds. Be the first to hear breaking news and reviews.